Genesis 8, verses 1 through 22. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off, I'm sorry, were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird. Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, and I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Amen. Thus ends the reading of the word of, God, our, of our God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how is it that you can be so focused on redeeming us, buying us back from our slavery to sin and the devil? especially when we enact our inward, vile, and sinful desires, many times without batting an eye or taking a momentary, hesitating breath. Yet you are more committed to us than we in our natural flesh are committed to ourselves. And you've proven your dogged determination to stick with us closer than a brother, giving up your son Jesus to prove your eternally loving determination to bring us all the way home to you, saved and safe, in your many mansions. In Jesus' name we pray. We talked the last two weeks about hoping in Noah because Noah was God's man for the hour. But really behind all that we saw, really even 
when we focused on Noah that the Lord, the Lord, the Lord was behind all that. And so now the, the focus switches to really what God does and what Noah does in response. And as I looked at this, couldn't help but think of that old nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. I remember seeing it in a book. And every book I looked in, he was pictured as an egg. I don't know the history of that poem, but he's an egg that's a person. So Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. You know, there's an innocent comedy about this tragic child's poem because it's, the character is an egg. We don't think much about eggs, even though most of the ones we eat are actually cute, fluffy little chickens in potential, little baby ones. And if you ever saw that baby, you wouldn't want to eat that little baby chicken, would you? No, we see boring, faceless, monocolored eggs. And that's why it's kind of, we can look at the tragedy of Humpty Dumpty and kind of just laugh it off because he's just an egg. I wonder, though, if this is a way of teaching about the fall of man. The fact that there was no earthly power, that, that, that the image of God, that, that human beings apart from God are so fragile and that no earthly power could ever put this mess back together again. And yet God does it, and he does it through a man. The main idea of this passage is that God restores the earth after he judges mankind. And the central point is that Noah is redemption's linchpin at this time toward restoration hope. I think about also that game called Jenga. You ever seen it with the little thin blocks and each person takes a turn and they have to pull it out without the tower falling? And there's always that one block that's really the linchpin that holds it all together. Noah is that block here. And when that mess is made, all these blocks can't put themselves back together. Only a man can remake that tower. Only a higher power than the blocks can do it. The same thing for us. That's why we're called to hope in God. Why? We hope in God because God here shows us that he remembers Noah, that he reminds Noah, and that he receives Noah first. Hope in God because he remembers Noah. Let's talk about remembering here for a second. Almost, almost literally, Noah's world is turned upside down. And God got him through the chaos of this flood. And while he was a man who walked with God, in, in chapter 6, verse 8, we saw he had favor. He found favor in the eyes of God, not because of him, but because of God's grace that he would decide to show favor to Noah. That also Noah responded with righteousness in his life. He sought after God. He was hungry for God. That's what we see in verse 9. And that's a result of God's favor on him. Same with us. We have God's favor and we want to live for him. Not only that, but God saw that righteousness in Noah's life and know that righteousness really in the end of the day could have ever saved him. But nonetheless, God saw it and he said it to Noah. That you, I, I have seen, he said in chapter 7, verse 1, that you are a righteous man. But he, though he walked with God, was a finite and a fallen man, fallen into sin. Can you imagine? See, the, the nursery presentation of Noah in that colorful ark with the giraffe's head sticking out, it doesn't capture the horror of this moment in, that, in the history of mankind. God wiped out everything that had the breath of life, including most of mankind, save eight. You know, this story has gone around the world. Do you know that, I forget what the word is, but there is a Chinese character 
that has a boat with eight people. I forgot what it means. I should know that. But this story, of course, got twisted. We see the Epic of Gilgamesh. You know, the boat was made like a cube. That boat wouldn't float. But Noah is, has watched the destruction. I have no idea what he saw. But can you imagine being on that boat when the fountains of the deep and the tectonic plates, I believe, is the way we can look at that, shifting under the earth, the earthquakes and the flood waters and the rain coming from above, the waters coming up from the deep. And he's not, that ark really doesn't have a rudder. It's just made to float. So he's, he's entrusting himself to God. But like any of us in those kinds of situations, it doesn't mean he didn't get scared. It doesn't mean that he wasn't affected at all. I, I imagine it was like his life was falling apart. The world he knew was changed at that moment. When you have a flood over the whole earth and you have tectonic plate shifts, I believe, again, that's an interpretation that's debatable because the Bible doesn't really give us a whole lot of clarity, but when it says the fountains come of the deep came open, that's an ancient way of describing, I think, earthquakes and waters from under the earth coming up. Even mountains were probably formed in that as the volcanic action happened, as, as we saw Pangaea possibly happen of the separation of the continents. The world looked very different. It looked very different from the, the world that Noah had inhabited prior to the flood. And from our perspective, when we're going through chaos like this, it does look like everything's coming apart. From God's perspective, he's putting it back together. Now, God does this by underscoring Noah's purpose. When we look at verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Noah was the priest, king, ruler of the earth at this point. And he made the ark with his own hands. Yes, he probably had help, both from his sons and maybe even some hired help among those very people that probably died in the flood. He made it, and the animals survived. Job well done. But it was through the chaos of the flood. And so we take this word, remember. Think about that. It's a piecing back together. And so God remembers Noah, but he also renews life. Look at the second half of verse 1, where he causes a wind to blow over the waters. And it recalls Genesis 1-2. Look at your scripture sheets. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the question that we need to ask there is, what is he going to do? And God says, let there be light. But the wind is also a foreshadowing of redemption. Wind and water. Think about this. Exodus 14, the Israelites are at the Red Sea. The Pharaoh and the Egyptian army are coming after them. And what happens? Look at verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. Do you hear an echo chamber here? And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their, on their left. But it's also a wind that foreshadows judgment, we see in later in Exodus 14 and in chapter 15, verse 10. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Again, an echo chamber. God says in, in the song that 
they sang in celebration. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Judgment that God makes. So how do you know that God is that concerned about you to remember you by renewing life on earth? Well, the fact is, is that you're breathing right now, right? He breathed the breath of life into your nostrils. And he not only renews life, but he reverses death. Look at verses 2 and 3. He's, re- he's, he's going backwards. As he opened up the fountains of the deep, now they're closing up. The windows of heaven are closing up. As C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan, the Christ figure, Aslan the lion, was uh, resurrected, he talked about the white witch who represents Satan. The white witch not knowing, she knew the deep magic that there was justice, that someone had to die in the place of a traitor, which Aslan did. But if she had looked back just a little bit before Aslan says, she would have seen a deeper magic still in which he says death itself would start working backwards. So we see reversing death there. We see also the reversing of death and Christ drowning in a flood of God's wrath, his righteous anger against us for our sin. Psalm 69, 1 and 2, which is a messianic psalm. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And then you have life after death. Noah, life after death. And Jesus, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 2.24. Why was that? Because John 1.4, in him was life. And Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then God resets the earth in verses 4 and 5. First of all, in verse 4, there is time marked. And you note the historical precision of month and day. This is meant to be communicating history, not a metaphor. And what would you have felt that first time that ark, after all that chaos, nudges up on Mount Ararat? Been a lot of time and waiting here for Noah. What was Noah thinking about? He was a man who walked with God. This was a time of reflection. And it talks about how the waters continued to abate, meaning that they continued to decrease. They continued to drain The total time of Noah being on the ark was 377 days, basically a year and 17 days, more or less. And here, he's been 40 days in the flood, plus 150 days for the waters to prevail and then cease. That's 190 days. That's six and one-third months that we're at this point here with Noah. And then there's three more months of the water abating, 90 more days we see in verse 5. And there's so much riding on Noah at this point. He is the man. So he has this time alone with God. That's what Jesus did. Look at Luke 5, verse 15 and 16. But, even, but now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed uh, of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. So God restores the earth after he judges mankind. He is a God of restoration. But the real meaning comes in this. If you're breathing, turn to him. Because the flood is still coming. It's the flood of God's wrath, not water. You can either have it poured out on Jesus and have him be flooded with wrath for your sins or it can be poured out on you. That is your decision. But you need to look to one man and hope in God and hope in God alone. Why? Because Noah and later Jesus, Jesus is the absolute linchpin of redemption. But Noah at this point in God's history of salvation is the linchpin here. 
So we hope in God because God remembers Noah by putting his world and his place and his purpose back together. But now he begins to help Noah to put his head back together. Therefore, we hope in God because God reminds Noah of his vision for Noah, that Noah is restoration's hope and restoration's head at this moment. First, in verses 6 through 12, he is restoration's hope. Now, Noah did those bird tests, right? He sent the raven and the dove out. That raven probably came back to the ark several times, probably just sat on top of it, I imagine, doesn't say. But he went to and fro looking for a place and he couldn't land. And then there were three different tries with the dove. In verse 9, Noah, I love the, the tenderness here. He takes her in, it says, and she comes back to him a second time with an olive leaf. And it's a confirmation for Noah of God's vision of restoration, that he is that man. And then when he sees that leaf, notice in verse 11 at the end of it. So Noah knew, Noah knew the waters had subsided. Can you imagine that? You had faith in God, but it's always good to get a little something. That's why we have the Lord's Supper, because God directs us. The preaching of the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, that's all he gives us for that same assurance of peace, peace with God, true peace. Not just internal, but peace in a, like in a war. Then the dove went out, he waited another seven days and did not return to him anymore. So he had this knowledge and dominion over the animals like Adam, right? Adam named the animals. He was supposed to multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. Noah is the new Adam. And now we have the water receding and land appearing. It's like day three, Genesis 1-9 on your scripture sheets. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. That's how the earth was created. So this is a recreation of the earth with the new Adam, a new man, and, and his dominion over all of creation. Creation was made for him. So God's vision of Noah is that he is restoration's, not only restoration's hope, but restora- restoration's head. It's a confirmation of Noah's knowledge of all these animals and all these things, that, the ark that he built. Noah removed the cover and looked, and what did he see? Dry land, meaning there was no water on it, but the earth was still soft, not inhabitable yet. And then uh, we see the confirmation of his faith. He waited on God in verses 14 and 15. He was an authority who himself is one under authority, just like Jesus said, I only do what my Father, I see my Father in heaven doing. He walked with God, and it showed through all of this, even through the ups and downs, both in the waters and in his own life. And then there's confirmation of God's order. First, we have Noah and his wife, verses 15 through 17. Then his son, sons and sons' wives. And then he says, bring with you, verse 16, uh, the animals. And Noah leads them all out because he is the head. He is the head. Bring with you the animals. And, And so he prepares for all their dominion roles. And then there's confirmation of his godliness in verses 18 through 19. He obeys all. He walks out according to God's ordering for him. So God is a God of restoration, and we need that hope for restoration because we need, and for that hope, we need a head, someone who's in charge, someone we can trust to get us there. Look at Ephesians 4, 4, 15, and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, meaning Christ, the head, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we hope in God 
Because God remembers Noah and he remembers us. He puts our world back together. He reminds Noah. He puts our heads back together like he did for Noah. But the most beautiful reason to hope in God is that God receives Noah, verses 20 through 22. First of all, there's a sacrifice required and a satisfaction received from that sacrifice. Verse 20, we see the sacrifice. God had killed the animal to clothe Adam and Eve in their sin and shame. And God had prepared Noah for this sacrifice in chapter 7, verse 2, when he told him to get, you know, we always think in twos, but there were seven pairs of the clean birds and the clean animals. However, God showed Noah what those were. And this helps Israel to see that they belong to him. And Israel is really just us in the Old Testament. They just, they're getting little object lessons, kind of like, like some churches do a a children's sermon, you know, you do a little object lesson that children can understand. So Israel has to understand these things. And God does this with Noah, sort of a prototype of Israel. And he builds an altar. You know what, that, what an altar is for? It's for killing things. Why? Because the day you eat of that tree, God said in Genesis 2.16, you will surely die. And guess what? They didn't have to die because these clean animals died in their place. So it's showing grace. Yes, Noah, you should die and you know it. But you're not dead yet, so turn to me. And so God is satisfied because the pleasing aroma of the burnt offering goes up to him. Noah's work is received. His worship is received. Like Genesis 2.15, when God told Adam to work and keep the garden. And then I love this part where it says God said in his heart. It's God talking to himself because he can't swear by anyone higher. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And he could add, though I still could, and he does sort of say that, right? He repeats Genesis 6, 5, basically, that man's uh, intentions are only evil from his youth. So why, is the, why was the ground cursed as, as it was cursed uh, for Adam, right? That he would have to toil to get it to bear fruit. You know why the ground's cursed? Because we stand on it. We sinners stand on the ground. That's why the ground is cursed. And guess what? Any tree that grows up out of this cursed ground is cursed as well. That's why in Deuteronomy 21, there in your scripture sheets, it says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him that same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. And Paul picks up on this when he talks about Christ being cursed for us, becoming a curse for us. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because the law only condemns us. None of us live the way we should according to God's law. And if you think you are, you're definitely far from the kingdom of God. You're way far from the kingdom of God. The law is designed to point you to your sin and to, to say, turn to me. It's actually a, a mercy and a grace of God. And so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why is it cursed? Because of us. We can't keep it because we're sinners. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Because that tree grew up out of a ground that we stand on. And that's why uh, Moses, when he went there, I don't know if I put that on your sheets, but when he saw the burning bush, what's the first thing God told him? Take off your sandals because the ground on which you are standing is holy. Moses had been walking around on this sinful, defiled land because it's ceremonially marked that way by God so that Moses would see the holiness of God and turn to God 
The funny thing is, is that his feet hit the ground on this holy ground and Moses is seen as holy. All of these are pictures of what Christ, the greater Moses, the greater Noah, would be for us. So the conclusion, hope in God, because salvation depends wholly upon him. He provided the sacrifice. Provided comes from two words, pro, which means toward, to like move toward, and vision, to move toward and give the vision of what is needed provides that. And God puts Noah's life back together again. He settles his mind. He received his worship. And the most beautiful thing of all, he received Noah himself, a sinner. And in verse 22, we see what we sang about, that great is thy faithfulness. And we see even some of the words from the second verse, the great is thy faithfulness are there, summer and winter and springtime and harvest. How faithful is our God to us? You see, those clean animals that God provided in chapter 7, verse 2, the seven pairs, both of the animals and of the birds, Jesus was that clean animal. Not that Jesus was an animal, but what those animals were pointing to was him that was sacrificed to satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. So God says this in his own heart because he can swear by no one or nothing greater than himself that he will indeed give us his grace and mercy and save us like he did with Noah through Christ. Therefore, God's working everything out for us to be saved by his son, prefigured here in Noah and his offering. We don't deserve it. We are wretches. That means we're destitute. We have nothing to offer but our sin. Like Macbeth's wife, and I can't remember her name, who couldn't wash the blood off her hands. We're the same way. We're marked, marked for death. We don't deserve it. We offer him nothing, but he gives us his all and his best in Jesus. And we'll be glad that it depends on him and not on us, on his faithfulness, not ours. As it says in 2 Timothy 2, look what it says there in the final verse there. The saying is trustworthy for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But catch this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That's pictured here when God says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. And that cross from the wood that came from the ground where Jesus became a curse for us. This is the song that he sings to himself about us in his heart. Indeed, what amazing grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't deserve to call you Father, and you wanted to be our Father. You sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, to be a curse for us as he hung on the tree that grew up out of the ground that we defiled with our sin. And yet his death on that wooden cross couldn't hold him down. He was your provision for a better sacrifice than Noah's. And he lived as our covenant head way more faithfully than Noah. In fact, he was perfectly faithful to you. And he was perfectly faithful to us, his bride. For that reason, we can surely hope in you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.